Hey everyone, you're listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Horgan. This show brings you advocates from across the country to speak about their experiences and advocacy work that happens beyond the crag. This includes climbing advocates that work on a local scale, policy professionals, athletes, and all others in between that have a deep love for the climbing environment. My aim is to connect more climbers to the work that these advocates do and inspire everyone that no matter how big or small, they have an opportunity to get involved and do their part. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. For nearly 30 years, Access Fund has been the organization that has kept our beloved climbing resources conserved and cared for. From stewardship to influencing climbing policy and educating current and new climbers on the best responsible behavior, Access Fund is on it. As they say, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. The show is also supported by Gnarly Nutrition. We want to thank Gnarly Nutrition for being a supporter of Access Fund and the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Gnarly Nutrition and its employees recognize that it is a privilege to visit and recreate in outdoor spaces. They believe that these spaces should be protected and safe for all to recreate in. Gnarly Nutrition. Want more. Do more. Be more. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast, episode number 42. My guests for today's episode are the founders of the newly created Indigenous Field Guide, Brianna Mazzolini-Blanchard and Sky Colea-Lenny. You may recognize Brianna's name from episode 32 when I had her on the show to discuss her involvement with the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition and her efforts working with various gyms around the Midwest to help provide free climbing opportunities for underserved communities. She's still out there, crushing the advocacy game, and I was really excited to invite her back to the show for her sophomore appearance. Sky is a climber and native Hawaiian based on the island of Oahu. She is a co-founder of one of Hawaii's local climbing organizations, Kanaka Climbers. With a culturally driven mission, Kanaka Climbers is focused on being an educational resource for folks to access the outdoors in a responsible and ethical manner. Given its rich cultural history, accessing the climbing resources and other outdoor opportunities in Hawaii isn't always very simple. Sky explains why that is, and I believe her experience founding this organization and her deep understanding of the juxtaposition between people wanting to play outside while also protecting cultural land and resources at the same time set her up well to team up with Brianna to help create the Indigenous Field Guide. So over the course of the last year or so, Brianna and Sky have put their creative minds together to create something that would transcend not only the climbing community, but also the outdoor recreation community as a whole. The field guide was created to provide education and to help navigate recreating ethically on and around sacred lands and culturally sensitive resources. I'm sure many of you have now seen the field guide being circulated across the internet and your social media channels recently. Many individuals and organizations have been sharing it in an effort to promote the guide itself, but also the pledge that you can sign to demonstrate your commitment to the pledge points that Brianna and Sky wrote as part of the whole entire guide. In a very short time, they have collected nearly 300 signatures on this pledge. Additionally, their website provides regional information on community organizations and nonprofits, indigenous leaders, and native-led companies so you can learn more about what indigenous resources you might have in your region or region that you might be visiting. 
And beyond the field guide, we get into some broader topics relating to indigenous interests and values. And I got to say, <laughs> I got a schooling in a good way in indigenous history, particularly when it comes to Hawaiian culture, as Sky spoke so passionately about her native Hawaiian people and the heightened sensitivity around climate access in Hawaii. We also get into the concept of land back. This can be a bit of a touchy subject, likely because it has been misinterpreted and largely misunderstood to what it actually means. Both Brianna and Sky provide context and clarification around this subject and explain it's not so much about land ownership in a transactional way as it is about stewardship and incorporating historical indigenous practices to take care of our lands. And they go on a long explanation of what this whole concept means. And that was probably the most powerful part of the conversation for myself. Pretty much everywhere we recreate is culturally significant. And whether it's your first time there or your hundredth time, knowledge and education are key. And this is a point that both Brianna and Sky preached throughout our conversation. So whether you're a climber, Biker, skier, bird watcher, you name it, this guide and its pledge points apply to you. And I'll leave you all with that. So please enjoy my conversation with Brianna and Sky. <laughs> well, we made it happen uh, across three time zones. We've made it happen. Sky, you're in Hawaii. I'm in Colorado. Brianna, you're calling in from Ohio. And I might be getting a little meta here, but for some reason, just spanning across this, like width or breadth, geographically speaking, it makes me just makes me feel really good. I'm kind of feeling warm and fuzzy inside. That climbing, climbing is kind of bringing us together to here today, and then we can connect over this over a phone call to talk about it. And we're going to be talking about some topics related to climbing, but definitely have a much bigger implication to outdoor recreation as a whole. And I mean, this is like nothing novel really, but uh, it makes me pretty happy that we can connect on on this topic and, and climbing and such uh, across the U.S. I think it's pretty cool. Brianna, I'm really excited to have you back on the show. Uh, the conversation we had, uh, episode 32, so exactly... 10 episodes ago is still one of my favorites. Um, I have listened to it a, a few times and and I'm so excited to have you back on. And you've had a lot going on in the last year. You've changed jobs. It seems like you're traveling a lot, getting out to festivals and such. Can you bring us up to speed a little bit on what's been going on with you over the last year? Yeah, I was trying to think about like when, I think it was like right July or August or something like that, um, like last summer that I was on that episode. And it's honestly, arguably one of my favorite as well. Um, but I yeah, so much has happened. Um, I started a full-time job with Access Fund shortly after that episode aired. And, um, you know, my role at Access Fund is strategic partnerships manager. And so I get the honor of uh, managing all of Access Fund's relationships with all of the industry partners like brands and climbing gyms and, and all of that. And so with that, you know, I'm traveling a ton for work, to go to trade shows and festivals, to connect with other really amazing industry leaders and partners that we have, um, you know, as a nationwide organization. And also been doing some like fun personal travel as well. I did a lot of ice climbing um, during the first couple months of the year. Um, so went out to Colorado as well as Michigan to um, get into ice climbing, which I think honestly I might continue doing for years to come. It was, <laughs> it was super scary. Sky, Sky did some ice climbing too, because we were together in Colorado um, oh, sweet. at some point. But uh, yeah, she, she's learning from one of the best over there, Kitty Calhoun. And yeah. 
but yeah, we both kind of delved into that sport this year and it's been uh, really awesome to be able to travel all over. I think when I was on the podcast last, I mentioned that it was my first time west of the Mississippi um, when I went on that trip to Wyoming and uh, Salt Lake City. And I feel like I'm traveling like every three weeks now. So this is my <laughs> life now. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, I mean, being like a sponsored climber yourself, you know, you're an ambassador for multiple companies. I'm sure that kind of helps bolster your role with, with, uh, with the Access Fund. Yeah, it, it has. And it's been really beneficial because I can not only, you know, bring in really amazing people that I already have relationships with to really advocate for the work that Access Fund is doing, but also, you know, elevate messages like the Indigenous Field Guide and other really important um things that need to be heard and um, in the outdoor industry. So, um, you know, having those platforms is really beneficial and um, Access Fund has been a supporter since the beginning. So it's been really rad to be able to connect all of these different assets or um, sorry, like aspects of my life, um, you know, for this sort of greater good, if you will. Yeah, that's great. How uh, how was your experience at OR recently? Yeah, I uh, just returned from OR on uh, Saturday, got home. Um, you know, I've never been before, but from what I've heard, it's it's smaller. You know, I think COVID had a lot to do with that. Um, you know, brands and organizations evaluating and reevaluating uh, the benefits to attending. So, um, you know, I was grateful for my experience. I not only got to be there to talk with um, Access Funds industry partners and those that, you know, donate and, uh, you know, their time and their money to the cause um, for Access Fund, but also connect with a lot of really amazing industry leaders. You know, um, I loved that there was much more culturally diverse um, representation at Outdoor Retailer and um, just excited to see the industry continue to shift um, and yeah. elevate these stories and these really important people and messages um, that, you know, may have historically not been elevated. Yeah, yeah, that's great. That's great. You can see a tangible change there. I love that. Sky, I want to welcome you to the show. Uh, I'm really excited to have you on and connect with you. And I want you to share a bit about yourself. Uh, you're in Hawaii, but I was curious where you're based in Hawaii and talk about the climbing a little bit, uh, the climbing resources and opportunities in Hawaii as well. Yeah. Um, aloha. I am Sky Kalealani. I currently live on Oahu. That is the main island of Hawaii. And I'm a native Hawaiian woman, Kanaka O'ivi. Um, I started a nonprofit here called Kanaka Climbers. So we are mainly focused on reconnecting other native Hawaiians to the outdoors, as well as educating our own community. And then our other focus is making sure our newcomers and our new residents understand the spaces that they're entering, some of the legalities to climbing here, um, because public land is not necessarily public access here. So it's a little different than it is over on the continent where you folks are. Um, so we just provide a lot of education. I, I've been to Oahu twice, and the last time I was there was a few years ago, and I know there was some bouldering kind of down the road from where I was staying, and I did not get a chance to go to it. Curious about what other climbing opportunities exist on each island. Is it mostly bouldering? Is there is there roped climbing? Is there a good mix of all that? Um, there is a good mix. It's It's challenging because there's one legal ropes location, and that is on Oahu at Mokalea. Um 
Access Fund actually helped Hawaii Climbing Coalition kind of gain legal access into that space. So there is a permit that's required to be signed. The climbing community and Hawaii Climbing Coalition are responsible for maintaining the trail there. Um, So that organization has done really great kind of maintaining that space, um, making sure the community understands. But I know in the last few years, we've had this large increase in people coming to Hawaii to start climbing here. Um, So the permit being signed is incredibly important to the community that's here climbing on a regular basis. Um, If one of our conservation officers was to go up there and you didn't sign that permit, you put that permit and that climbing legality at risk for the community that's here full time. Um, So it's a huge thing. One of the main things we love to talk about. Um, There's also quite a bit of bouldering. Um, Waimea Bay is a great location for anybody that's visiting. It's sand falls. It's about 15 to 25 feet. You got some high balls and there's lovely stairs on the back for you to top out. You can watch the sunset. You can go jump in and swim. Uh, You can climb in your bathing suit. It's a gorgeous location. Pads not needed. That's usually where we recommend people to go um, because we only have one location that rents pads. And so that's challenging. Then the rest of our bouldering is it's pretty far in. You got to commit to to going into the valleys. Um, Most of that isn't legal. So there's aspects of that that are really challenging. As a native Hawaiian, I have, I can go and practice my culture, but that becomes challenging, right? I'm a light-skinned Hawaiian. Um, What makes it different from me to someone else? And those are kind of the conversations that we delve into with people, um, making sure they understand that aspect of stuff. So that's a really, really important conversation we have on a regular basis. And then... The big thing that we focus on is Hawaii is less than 1% the landmass of the entire United States, but we hold 44% of the endangered species. So if, you know, we have had a lot of people who are visiting here and they drop locations on, you know, um, publicly uploaded apps that give you GPS Now, they're also not adding in that along this trail, there is a plant that there's less than 50 in the entire world left. And if you were to sit on it, step on it, go off trail, you could potentially affect that. So education here is huge and not just for climbing, for the entire tourism industry. And so it's it's challenging with climbing now because we have such a sensitive ecosystem. You know, the state isn't really into climbing. Right now, it's kind of like a... We'll look the other way until someone does something wrong. So we all have to be on our best behavior. We have to make sure our friends that are coming here to visit understand the aspect of these things. Um, you know, like, I don't want to say any apps, but a publicly uploaded app for hiking. There is over 500 trails on that for just my island, just on Oahu, and only 119 are legal. That's it. So... We don't have funding for conservation. We don't have funding for enforcement of conservation. Not at all for what we have, the amount of people accessing these spaces. So the state's mind, they'll just close it off. It becomes then illegal, which then means it's unmanaged, unregulated. And as climbers going in there or hikers going in there, we can potentially impact something because there's no conservation in plan. Um, So that 
ethical hiking and climbing is massive here. Make that conscious decision on your own. Is my impact to this location, you know, will it affect anything that goes on here? Is it more important than the climbing? It's it's a larger conversation climbing here in Hawaii. It's not simple like, nah, I'm just going to go climb a boulder. It's, is this space really worth me going to climb? Is this space really worth me going to, you know, put up some FAs, put up some routes? You really have to question that and you have to know the culture, the history, what cultural resources might be there, archaeological resources might be there. And then on top of it, you have all of these native species that could be impacted by climbing. Um So all of our climbers here are pretty knowledgeable. We don't have a huge outdoor climbing community. I would say throughout the islands, maybe less than 500, 400 indoor. It's a lot more than that. We have a lot of people who like the indoors. It's hot and humid, you know, mosquitoes. Not many people want to commit (laughs) to that outside. (laughs) Sure, sure. And that sounds like something that the Indigenous Field Guide you know, that's, that's the information that could be lended to folks so they know and have a better understanding of where they might be climbing, right? Yes, definitely. You know, an Indigenous Field Guide links, you know, to my, my, my organization here's website. And so Kanaka Climbers has all that information, understanding where you're going, um, you know, but again, we can't provide GPS locations to illegal spaces, but we can educate you surrounding those. So we do a lot of educational nights at the at the local gyms where we have conversation about the mo'olelo, the oral history of the space, um, as well as any of the legalities of going there. That's Yeah, it's very useful information. And I know there's another, at least I think one more uh, local climbing organization in Hawaii. Um, are you? Do you collaborate outside of uh, your group with the other climbing groups and maybe work on some of these access issues? You know, collaborating is a little is a little challenging. Uh, I'll say that we, we all do activities together. We're all super supportive of each other, but sometimes indigenous concerns don't necessarily line up with the, with the larger opinion. If I was to say that something is a burial site or something is too sacred to be accessed, you know, a lot of our people would say, okay, yeah, let's not go. Um, and it wouldn't really be an issue. It wouldn't be a conversation. It would be something as simple as you're right. This site is is too important to be accessing. You know, that's not to say we don't, we all aren't working together. We've done cleanups together. We've had conversations. We've, you know, supported each other through fundraising and things like that. But do we always line up on the same opinions? Not necessarily. And that's fine. That's why it's important to have multiple organizations, right? The Arch Project focuses on, they... They're crushing it with doing cleanups every single weekend. Over the last year, they've done, I, I want to say it's almost every single weekend, they've done a cleanup somewhere, um, which is amazing. You know, Hawaii Climbing Coalition is doing trail maintenance up a pretty steep hike. They fully committed to that. They're doing all their fundraising. They're maintaining um, all of the things they have to do to keep that permit open and they're doing great at it. And then for us, we focus on that cultural aspect. So with the amount of overdevelopment here in Hawaii, there's a lot of issues with our Evi kupuna. So Evi is bones and then kupuna is like our ancestors. So ancestral remains. Every time something is put up or built here, one of our kupuna are most likely going to be unearthed. And I know that's 
sometimes a big question because people are like, I don't understand how they keep running into bones. Hawaiians were everywhere. Every valley, all over Hawaii. And every time we develop, we will run into somebody. And as a native Hawaiian, that's horrible to see. I don't really enjoy the amount of gentrification or overdevelopment that's happening here. But with that comes a responsibility. If they want to put a hotel there, my kapuna can't stay. So typically they will bring them out. And that's where that aspect of cultural climbing comes into play. It's our kuleana, our responsibility to take that kupuna, that ivi kupuna, and place them somewhere safe. So understanding the land, um, understanding which trails are popular, which trails aren't popular, where's a safe space for that kupuna is something that my organization focuses on. So we make sure that's kind of our line, I guess. You know, we've adopted a few climbing sites. We're doing cleanups every few months. Our crew's there regularly. Um, But yeah, typically our work at Kanaka Climbers is very cultural focused, which also means you have to be culturally trained. You need, um, and there's two aspects of it, to be culturally trained to deal with Ivikupuna and then being trained to be an adequate climber and be a safe climber because we really can't risk anyone being injured during such an important work. Um, it's huge. Right. And that's two different, completely different fields that they have to be excelling in to be able to do this kind of work. And it's a it's a heavy, heavy responsibility. And I'm I'm lucky to have a few of our Kanaka Climber members be versed in it. That's yeah, it's very interesting. Thank you so much for that. That's a very unique and special mission to have. I feel like every conversation I have on the show, I, I learn something new, of course, but every so often I get a unique uh, conversation going like, well, like what you're just talking about is something I never have heard of before. And it's something that isn't very common among other local climate organizations that I found so far. And having this culturally driven mission is something that yeah, that I don't think is super common, but very, uh, very unique and very special to what you can bring to the climbing community. It's it's fantastic. Thanks. So I want to get into it some more here. I think it's a great a great segue. You even mentioned the short phrase "understanding the land," and I think that's a great way to kick off our conversation about the newly created Indigenous Field Guide that you both put together. And I'm so excited to help facilitate the conversation and be a student today as well. And so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting into it here. I don't want to provide an explanation for what the Indigenous Field Guide is. I really want to leave it up to you two um, to do that. But as I read about it, as I read the pledge and everything that went into that, I read through the website, the resources and everything, there were several little statements or phrases that I read over while reading through the website. And I came across a really nice one that I think paints a nice broad brushstroke on the intention of the field guide. And it's to that point of understanding. And it says on the website, quote, understanding the significance of a space to inform a larger connection, end quote. Like that, that, that was fantastic. So could either one of you talk about uh, some more about the significance behind this phrase on your all's uh, about page? Yeah, um, I can. So understanding the significance of a space to form a larger connection is an amazing concept. Let's think of the outdoors like our home, right? Um, 
You want to come in, you want to go to your grandmother's house. And when you're there, you're invested in what's going on with your grandmother's life. Maybe you get in the kitchen, you know where the drawers are, where the spoons are, you know where all the stuff is in that house because you're invested in that house. Your grandmother's house is another home to you. Um, If you know the history or like these little simple things about a space, you immediately have a connection. If I understand the history of an area I'm going to, it's not just me going to this boulder to take it off my list. It's me really investing in that space. Um, we'll do days where we go out with people and in the walk on the walk there, we'll take, we'll call it a huaka'i. It's a, it's a journey. And now it's like a conversational journey. It's, it's also a long hike typically. And so on this huaka'i, we're stopping, we're looking at these these endangered and endemic species endemic means it's only found here um and we're talking about them what were the his the cultural and historical uses of these plants um we'll go past pohaku that's stones and maybe there's petroglyphs on them these petroglyphs give us all of this conversation to have about what the space was utilized for um we've gone through dried stream beds and we have this larger conversation of economical wealth and where it's positioned you know a lot of our water sources were taken after the overthrow for um the pineapple fields and so you have this greater conversation throughout getting to that climbing location and then when you get there the send seems so much more impactful like i've had people move here do these huakais with me and they have such a connection that they're going back to climb the same like V2 or, you know, V7 a hundred times just because they have such a relationship with space. And when they have that relationship with space, they just become such better stewards to the land. I'm invested in helping it be cleaned up the same way after your grandmother cooks for you, you were happy to help her clean up the kitchen, right? You're happy to help your family throw out the trash. You, you want to do that because you're invested in your home. And that's the kind of relationship that you should form. Even when you're vacationing somewhere, why not learn more? So you can understand that space. You appreciate it so much better if you are able to form that connection. Yeah. And, you know, I think this idea too transcends, you know, not only Native Hawaiians, but like indigenous groups all over, you know, the Turtle Island, you know, the the U.S., the continent and and all across the Americas um, is this connection to a space and connection to a history of people um, that really builds relationship and connection to one another. You know, there's so many stories that we're hearing now of, um, you know, especially out West, you know, Utah and otherwise of these um, cultural resources being damaged or stolen or um, folks not even understanding that they are there, right? Like you'll see a set of bolts, like right above a petroglyph um, out in Utah or somewhere else. And um, people had no idea that this was here because they have no true connection to the land and the land and the water that is family that is life to indigenous people and so you know when you're trampling over remains or you're damaging petroglyphs or you're you know not stewarding the land well that's life like to understand that to indigenous people the land is life and their livelihood and all that they have you know my family is chamorro so we are indigenous to the island of guam and we have we're what i you know 
also comparatively Hawaiians as well, is this modern day colonial idea uh, because there are so many present day issues still happening on these islands uh, with these indigenous communities who are constantly losing um, any land that they might have had left that is their source of livelihood, that is their source of life. And when you as a people have such a connection to land and it and understand its significance and can like allow other people to understand that significance as well, we begin to collectively care for that space better. And like Sky said, you know, we, we envision it like, or, or we feel it and we understand it like it is a family member, like we're going into our homes. I can only imagine people, you know, how many people listening take their shoes off before they enter into their own home and just, you know, beginning to develop this understanding and respect for the land and for people who have stewarded and cons and, and, and conserved our our, our spaces for thousands and thousands of years before the Americas were even formed. Um, and so, you know, as a whole, this spans across the entire world of, of, of this connection to land and connection to, to each other. Um, I know, you know, we've had conversations, Peter, before about like what it just, what it means and how impactful it is to feel connection with another human being and to understand their story and how that can change how you go about your life and how you then interact with other people and what your priorities are. And it's just so um, important to feel that connection, that significance to a space. Um, and in my mind too, like that larger connection is, can, can change your whole life. 100%. And I, I spend a lot of time in Indian Creek in Bears Ears. I go out there every spring, every fall, at least once. And I, the Access Fund and and you all and, and everyone that has advocated for that space, I, I have, it, it's impossible for me to separate the thought of being on sacred lands while I'm there. I mean, it's, I think about it every single day that I am there, like right when I wake up to when I crawl back into my tent or the back of my truck. I mean, it is impossible for me to separate that now, separate from that now. And I think that really speaks to um, the, I hate to say marketing, but just the, the broadcasting of these, of these values and these morals. I mean, it sits so deeply with me now. It, I can't be the only one that feels this way. Yeah, you know, I went to Indian Creek for the first time. This is no surprise. I've said this multiple times. I've not traveled west, but a few times in my life. <laughs> um, but um, I went to Indian Creek in, um, I think it was March. And we were, um, you know, with the Access Fund team, we were going on these various hikes and um, past various petroglyphs and just really special, special areas. And, you know, I'm wondering, does the person to my right feel this depth of connection to this area. You know, we have one other native on staff, Aaron Mike, he's our native lands coordinator. And I could just like feel this connection with Aaron in the space that it means is so meaningful to, you know, his people, to me as a native woman, and just like wondering, like, does this person next to me feel the depth of connection to this place. And then I might look up and there's a set of bolts above, like catty corner to uh, a panel of petroglyphs. And it just, you know, breaks my heart. And, and I was like weeping at one point. I was like, it is so, there's such a, like it's such a disconnect um, from whoever put up these set of bolts, whoever was so drawn to 
um, want to climb this crack in a place where there's like thousands of cracks thousands. to climb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is lifetimes protect like there's climbing like five feet away or, or 10 feet away or a mile down the road. But right here was where they they put in those bolts right near this this piece of of history of significance. And, you know, if we're speaking more broadly, like the, the whole of the land is sacred, but this particular cultural resource, like right there. And it just so um, like, I was just so struck with this like um, disconnection that people have. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're talking about this, this connection and significance, and it's all about like bringing everyone into this like meaningful care of the land because they feel this connection and understand that this land has a history that spans beyond comprehension. (laughs) Yeah. And then to kind of take that and then bring it into that marketing aspect, when you look at the basics and the the ethics that we have, they were written by for-profit companies. They weren't written with indigenous folks in mind. Um, And now, most people walk through spaces and they do recognize these sites and they understand and they're willing and they're open to learn. Um, but is it, is it marketed to actually value this space as a living thing? Is it, um, is it marketed in a sense that when you're there, you're on sacred and stolen land? I don't necessarily think that the industry as a whole has quite got there yet. And that really is what we hope to get across with the field guide um, is bringing this ethical pledge, this ethical idea of just understanding the space a little better. You know, I did the climbing on sacred land panel with access fund a couple, Oh gosh, I don't know. That was like pandemic time. Maybe can't even remember. Yeah. It's, it's all melded together at this point, but for that, you know, and nothing against the guy he's, He's gone through his own stuff after after all that story broke. But his excuse was, oh, well, there's Petroglyphs by a parking lot. I thought it wasn't important. And, well, there wasn't really any signage. And, and that kind of enters into this larger thing because it's the same thing here. We've had Petroglyphs that weren't honored and respected. Why? Because there weren't signs. And that's always been this, like, larger excuse of, like, well, it didn't say claim it, claim that idea of ignorance. Um and now the federal government, when you look at that or the state or whoever is managing that land, funding to educate or protect is limited. You know, things like that that we assume the state or the federal government would be putting their dollars towards, they aren't. You know, signs cost money. They cost cost a couple hundred bucks and there are so many cultural resources that in the state's mind or whoever's mind – Documenting each one is out of the cost range. So what does that mean for the larger community? That we don't need to sit and wait for the federal or state or whoever is managing that land to tell us what's significant. If there is a petroglyph or there is a cultural site, whether or not there is a sign, whether or not it's too close to a road, you know, it's not our place to decide if something is sacred or not. You know, whether or not those people are still active in that space has been common. Oh, well, I assumed that, you know, they were they were old and no one really cared anymore. I've heard that so many times. Um, or there's in St. George recently at um, 
the alien boulder, you know? Everybody assumed that these petroglyphs were fake because the the um, guidebook said they were fake. Now, the guidebook author, did they do their research? Did they talk to an archaeologist? Where did they find out this information? Did they talk to anyone indigenous? And the answer is no, they didn't. Um, yet it was published, placed on quite a few websites for sale. Myself and a few other indigenous folks, we worked towards getting the the state to go out there and authenticate these petroglyphs, which then meant we went to the book publisher. And that book publisher retracted that chapter from the book. They are, I believe, offering like free sections of that chapter to people now with updated information that these are authentic petroglyphs and that boulder shouldn't be climbed on anymore. But that took so much work. And where is that line as like this larger industry when we're taking guidebooks, because there's quite a few guidebooks that publish that they are assuming these petroglyphs are fake. As an industry as a whole, when are we going to start checking our facts before we're putting this information out there? Those publicly uploaded websites are so detrimental sometimes to our indigenous folks. And, and it's challenging because one person's opinion is not might not be right. And if you go there once a week and in your mind you've never seen an indigenous folk there that does not mean they aren't there it means it's not the right time they don't have any sacred purpose there's a lot of areas here in Hawaii that I don't go to unless I have a reason to go like cultural reason to go they're a very sacred site as a Hawaiian I'm not going to go unless I have a reason to go um do I have friends that go on these areas go to those areas all the time I do most of them are up there doing plant conservation and things like that. But there's that idea of just because you aren't seeing indigenous folks or just because someone told you one time that something isn't valid or important, do your research, check your sources, look into stuff, Those is what I'm saying. And this was like really that development for the field guide. You know, this was this, was this gap that we... That Sky and I, you know, mostly Sky's brainchild, but I was brought along later on, <laughs> you know, to fill a space that was necessary, um, you know, and we as climbers and also as Indigenous women, you know, we wanted to create a resource that addressed things that we were hearing, you know, things that are mentioned, you know, other um, tribes that we've talked to and, and work with, like they have these best practices on their websites and they have, um, you know, you can find it um, and, and they might um, advertise it um, on their social media or in their prints or whatever that might look like. But to create a resource that Sky and I did to focus completely on how to recreate responsibly, how to steward the land well, how to change your perspective and view outdoor recreation in whatever form that looks like from climbing to biking, to hiking, to everything, right? We're not just focusing on climbers, even though Sky and I are both rock climbers, like we are not just focusing on this. We want to speak to the industry, the outdoor industry as a whole and wanted to create a resource, the indigenous field guide that pushes the outdoor industry to do something, commit to a set of pledge points, um, for how to take the next step in, you know, 
like bringing all of these things together. Um, you know, we've spoken with a lot of different tribal leaders and groups and we're really, um, you know, we've been talking about Bears Ears and Sky and I, you know, our great friends over at the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition um, doing amazing work. Um, and, you know, you, you ask these questions and you, you, you learn that like there are, there's this increasing or there's this like gap, right, of like what are the outdoor conservationists and the archaeologists and the conservation groups and different things like that? What are they doing? And then what is what are these indigenous groups, these tribes hopes? And and there's still this barrier, like this divide of like what what is our purpose for doing all these things? Are we working together? You know, and how can we collectively work together to amplify indigenous concerns, to protect the land? To do all these things that both parties are saying that they want done, but to really understand and amplify the indigenous concerns. And, um, you know, the field guide, the indigenous field guide was born out of, um, you know, this connection that Sky and I have within the industry, but also as indigenous women understanding that there are all of these concerns and all of these things that need to be said and that people need to commit to because they're recreating outdoors, you know, almost every day for some people. Um, and that this is a, this is the way, <laughs> you know, this is a better way to protect. And this is the, the way in which we can conserve and preserve not only indigenous cultural sites and petroglyphs and, and burial sites and all of these different components of this, but also to conserve and preserve the land, the air, the water, you know, um, Indigenous resistance has curbed fossil fuel emissions by like a significant percent. And that's just, you know, one way of seeing things. It's like if we could amplify that on a larger scale and make people understand that this is impactful and this like reverting back to indigenous agricultural stewardship can literally save the world. Like I want this everywhere. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I want this message all over and, and, and for good reason, like these messages and this needs to be talked about because we've come away from it for such a long time. And we're seeing wildfires like crazy. I mean, especially like right now, you know, in Arizona is a great example. Like we're seeing all of this, um, all of these, um, you know, we've moved away from all of these indigenous agricultural practices, and now we're watching our planet burn because of it. And it's just so important to understand that, you know, indigenous people were stewarding the land for thousands of years before someone got a degree in conservation and decided that this was how we wanted to do it. And only just now, right, are our conservationists and people in the in that industry realizing like, oh, maybe maybe like certain burnings are okay. And maybe like all of these things that we've, you know, indigenous people have been doing for thousands of years. And so the industry is starting to see and understand, but like, we're really wanting to push this message with the field guide. And that's sort of where its birth began and why we wanted to get this out there into the outdoor industry's hands into the hands of and get these brands to commit organizations like the access fund and others you know the climbing initiative and other um, industry organizations we want this in front of them and we want to amplify the voices of our indigenous brothers and sisters you know leaders um, business owners guides um, and the likes to really um, amplify these people and these concerns um, and that's, I mean, Sky, please follow up with anything. But I feel like, 
you know, that really summarizes like why we created the field guide. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I've had a lot of conversations about, well, why don't, you know, indigenous people come to the table? The thing is, it's our table in that sense. Um, For lack of better words, you want to talk conservation, talk to the Kama'aina, talk to the people of the land, the people that are there that have stewarded it for generations and generations. Um, You know, and there's this idea, right? And here it's challenging. And I'm and it's challenging everywhere for indigenous folks, but um, I'm only going to speak to my area um, in that sense. So we have a sovereignty movement. We have a lot of people that don't want to be part of America, and that's fine. But we can't step away from that idea of government until and wait for sovereignty to happen, if that's where we want to be. We have to make the state or the federal government come to us. This is our table. The land that was taken needs to be essentially not, and land back, the idea of land back. It doesn't mean everybody's going to get kicked off their homes. It's giving the indigenous folks who understand that area that power to maintain that area. Conservation through indigenous practices is huge. Land back is giving us the table back. The idea of you guys come to us, let's discuss how we can help this area regrow. Let's discuss how we can start making this a sustainable farming space again um, that, you know, fed thousands and thousands of people for generations That's that idea of land back. Let's give it back to the community that's there all the time. Um, You know, when entering into spaces, especially here in Hawaii, we never had, and, and honestly everywhere with indigenous folks, we don't own the land. The land is not ours to own. It was open for everybody. And so when fences go up and you know, oh, this is this national park and you can't go now, or this is this state land and, oh, but it's state land and it's actually private, you can't go there, is still a foreign idea. But at the same time, now we run into these issues where for generations we hid where these sacred sites were from people who wanted to steal them. You know, and I mean, I've got community members who just returned from Europe and they brought back 66, um, 66 kupunas. And sorry if this is hard for people, but their heads, um, indigenous people's heads have been massive. I mean, if you look in New Zealand, they almost lost the entire cultural practice of the facial tattoos because it was um, their community was hunted down. And they would take their heads and they would preserve them so they as an art piece, you know, so people stopped getting these facial, these facial moko so that they could keep their lives. And again, because of that, they lost these practices. But that's how intense it was for people to be taking, taking, taking our cultures. So that idea of hiding our culture worked for a couple decades But now our younger generations, there's this renaissance within indigenous people that we are ready, we're hungry, we want to protect. And there's nothing secret anymore. With social media and with geotagging, that idea of hiding a sacred site doesn't work. 
we need to be there. We need to make sure that the state, the federal government, whoever the landowners are, are being responsible. You want to take this land, then you need to be responsible. You need to fund it. You need to protect it. You need to have enforcement. You need to be, you know, allowing groups in to maintain or steward it. All of those things are so significant. And again, nothing secret with social media. That idea of geotagging is something we talk about in um, in the field guide. And it's it's been a hard one for people. You know, mm-hmm. that idea of, oh, well, are you doing it to keep people out? And are you gatekeeping? And how I, how I do it here in Hawaii, if you don't know how much conservation funding is going there, if you aren't aware, if you're on a legal or illegal hike, it's not your place to be geotagging and directing more people to it. Not for the idea of gatekeeping, but for the idea that you need to take the time to be educated before you go to a space that is such a sensitive resource to us, whether it's a natural resource or a cultural resource. And so that, you know, that understanding of ethical hiking or access is huge. Right, because this is like not an uncommon concept, right? You know, we're not... Indigenous people aren't saying we don't want you to access this place because we want to have it all to ourselves to be able to to recreate and allow only certain people there. It's literally the idea of protecting, um, you know, endangered species or cultural artifacts. It's it's almost like no, because we don't want anybody doing that there. This place is sacred, and um, and and so it's it's it has been somewhat of a struggle around that particular concept because. You know, you're talking about outdoor recreation. It's driven by this idea of exploration and and all of the first ascents and 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 this this very American idea of conquering. And you know, we we conquer a climb, we we send a climb, we conquer a mountain, and and really, like it's 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 breaking down that understanding as a as a climbing community as an outdoor recreation community you know i say climbing because that is the industry that i work in and that is my you know i'm a climber and so but it really i'm really talking about is the outdoor recreation industry as a whole regardless of what you do and you know understanding this right like this shift in mindset is why the field guide was created. It was, you know, necessary for people and it is necessary for individuals who are outdoor recreators, whatever they do, to shift their mind with how they're viewing protection of land, conservation, outdoor recreation, and how we are just existing through time and space in these places. Um, And it's really quite, it's very beautiful. Like when you really think about it and break it down, that like, you know, Every step we take, every movement, every moment in these spaces is special. And I think as climbers, we know this, right? Like a lot of climbers will talk about like climbing being their escape and their their sacred space and like all of these things. And so this idea isn't so foreign, right? This idea of these special places, yet so often, right? Like so many conservation needs and things like that are forgotten because the importance is in descend or, you know, trying really hard on your project or whatever that looks like for you. But then we sort of disregard the protection and the importance of, of, of this space, um, you know, and its longevity um, and the protection of these resources, whether it's the soil, whether it's a cultural artifact or whatever that might look like. And it's so important that we begin to shift our mentality um, 
so that, you know, because like Sky said, like our concerns are rising and we're vocal about it. Like indigenous people are becoming more vocal about it. Like there are a lot of instances like the Maori aside, like other indigenous groups whose lives were taken from them because of who they were. And this is everywhere. And this idea of land back, you know, to, to as an Anglo-Saxon concept, right? Like as an American colonialist like concept that would say to me, well, you want to take the land away from me, right? And to outdoor recreationists, what that might read is you want to take my my spaces, my climbing, my my biking trails, my mountains, my whatever. You want to take that experience away from me. And to fathom that the idea of land back goes beyond this idea of ownership, but we're not actually even talking about ownership because the land can't be owned because to indigenous people, there is no ownership. There's collective care and there is, um, there is stewardship and there is um, community. It's well beyond this idea of transactional, um, like you give to me, I give to you, or I buy from you, you buy from me. And so this concept of land back is exactly what Sky said, returning stewardship and maintenance and um, ownership, but not in the ownership like that we ourselves as like in 2022 as Americans understand as ownership, like my house, right? I bought my house with money from the bank. That was a transaction. But like land back is returning to indigenous practices, whether it's stewardship, agricultural land practices and giving the space back to what that used to be. And I think it's hard concept, right? Because like we are, like the like communities and, and our society understands like they're so um understand this from like a transactional perspective it's like oh well if you have that then it's not mine anymore and that's it and and so we're going well beyond what a lot of people understand and that's the whole point of the field guide is to expand and go beyond what we've understood to be true to return back to these practices that are going to save our planet if I'm being quite frank. <laughs> um, and so there's so much of this mind shift that, um, and growth that we're hoping happens with this, with this field guide. And um, to give like a little, a little example. So I am the Hawaiian cultural rep on the Na'alahele trails um, council. So it is basically a trail council for the legal trails here on Oahu. And, we had a space, Manoa Falls, and we clocked over 4,000 people going on a weekend to a trail that was originally like one and a half feet wide. Um, is that many people going to that trail ethical? Absolutely not. It took years of our community saying, what are you guys going to do about this? When are we going to fix this space? When are we going to give it a break? Um you know, and recently it happened. We shut down the trail. We moved plants that were significant. We um, expanded the trail to seven feet wide. We graveled it. And now it's the seven feet. Whoa. Seven feet wide. Well, you got to think, how are you going to fit 4,000 people in a trail? Oh, oh, totally. Yeah. Absolutely. And um, for anybody who hasn't been here, that trail is in the middle of town in a very tourism um centered space so it's one of the easiest trails to get to you can take a wheelchair on it now you can bring your kids on it um you know it's one of the first trails i'll recommend to people when they want to come here now 
But for me as a Hawaiian, I stopped. I hadn't been there in years because I knew that trail needed love. It needed TLC. It needed that. It needed conservation help. And we were able to do it. Now that's an ethical trail to do was our community, some of our community and a lot of more new people, new people who recently moved here were upset that they could no longer do the trail barefoot because of the gravel. But, you know, to each their own, we understand everybody's not going to be happy with everything. But in that sense, the trail is wide enough for two way traffic. You no longer need to be going off trail. We've all run into those issues where people start cutting trails direct to this boulder, direct to that boulder. Here in Hawaii and in a lot of spaces, we have very sensitive ecosystems and we can't have people doing that. So maintaining trails that are adequate for the amount of people that are going there is important. So that idea of land back where they finally listened to the community saying we need to address this space was huge. And now when I've gone there, I've seen more Hawaiians there than I have in years because we can go back and appreciate that the space is being maintained. They put up cultural sites, um, signs throughout it. It's like a history lesson when you walk through. It's amazing. It's a perfect idea of finally listening to the indigenous community and making it a space that works for all of the things we have here, works for tourism and works for us. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, just to kind of connect that land back idea that it works. Yeah, Brianna, you said that land back is, it's a hard concept to understand. Because I, th- I just think it's misunderstood. And you both just provided a very great clarification on what it actually means. Now, I think if however many folks listen to this episode can have a better understanding of what that term means and and be perhaps okay with it now that they get the full concept of what it's supposed to mean. Yeah. I want to go back a little, a, a little bit further and talk about the, the fake petroglyphs real quick. I, it just, I saw that somewhere on the website and it just, I was, uh, I wasn't sure what you meant by that. Of course I know now, but I just, I can't fathom why this author could justify them being fake. I mean, the only fake petroglyphs I know of is when someone writes, Steve was here, Yeah, right. you know, like that is fake. That is not authentic. Like that's that's the only thing I can think of. So, the justification to or reasoning to uh, put this in a guidebook as as fake and it's okay to do this or that around them. It's it's really baffling to me. Right, and it's this this lack of understanding. Right, you know, I think mm-hmm. too. I don't know. There's just so such a lack of understanding and, and empathy, and you, we could really get into like us as as humans and like our psyche and how we kind of evaluate what is important and not important. Um, but you know, I think truly what it comes down to is like a, the lack of understanding, right? When you don't understand significance to a space, you don't have a connection. Like, okay, so maybe even moving beyond indigenous concerns, like. As a black climber climbing in the Southeast, I'm not referring to myself because I'm not black, but as a black climber in the Southeast, you know, I understand that my friends are going to have different experiences than say the white climber going into the Southeast to climb. And as a, you know, if if a white climber was trying to comprehend, right, like the significance of that other person, that black person's experience, like they're not going to understand unless there's some sort of connection with that person or their friends and they share some sort of dialogue and things like that. Like we, like people can't 
understand. I'm not saying it's an excuse because it's absolutely not an excuse to remain uneducated. But we like people don't understand that significance. And then they just ignorantly sort of publish things or or act out or say something out of ignorance uh, because they have no connection and because they have no like they've not experienced it themselves. And I truly think that that's one of the plagues of of, of human nature is that um something is only important to us if we experience it ourselves or if it holds personal significance. And that is just such a backwards way of existing and like living life and going through life because it lacks any kind of empathy for like, you know, anybody that you're interacting with. And for me, like my life is its purpose is its interactions with human beings. Like we can't go through life without interacting with another human being, whether at the gas station, the store, the gym, outside on a hike, climbing, you know, even if you just want to talk about like roped climbing, like that requires two people who then have to interact with one another. And you're, you're taking on each other's life experiences, your burdens, your stress, your happiness, whatever that might be. And you're experiencing life together and to operate as a human going up through society as someone who disregards um, something of such high significance to anybody else is really sad. But like, at the same time, this happens, right? And Peter, you're like, I can't fathom this. And I only hope that there were so many people that could just not fathom this. But the reality is, mm. you know, yeah, you know, when, you, when you're looking at a piece of art or something that's highly valuable, like that's so subjective. And like, what I really want to see is a world where like these things that hold such like inarguable significance are are you know protected and that people will walk around with the same mindset that you do peter of like this is it's ridiculous that someone would say that this was fake because it's true <laughs> it is ridiculous mm -hmm. yeah but to speak on that like when that whole thing came out in saint george um at the alien boulder is actually the exact boulder someone had posted pictures of themselves and they were doing a heel hook right on the petroglyph. And, you know, it was shared to me because it was recently after we had something similar happen here in Hawaii where people didn't understand that the petroglyphs were important. Um, and I had folks reach out to me and like, what do we do? And, you know, at first it was, let's just educate who we see online. Pretty easy to find it through hashtags. I think they've all been deleted now. Um, but, you know, those, the people that had posted pictures at that boulder were passionately arguing that they were in the right to be there because of the guidebook. And I think that's where it comes back to the industry as a whole is where are we getting our facts? Why are we trusting publicly uploaded apps to help us get to spaces? And, you know, what is the checks and balance and what becomes the responsibility of those companies? You know, if someone can post this, where does the company's responsibility, ethical responsibility come into play when they start thinking, hang on, what is this space? Is there any sacred objects? Is there sacred sites, cultural sites, archaeological sites? What is the history? All of these questions should be at the front of you being allowed to publicly upload something that you don't have all the facts for. Um, same thing with a book publisher. I don't understand how it got through that. I've never heard of a book that didn't check their facts, but apparently there are. But there's that. I was assuming that all 
publishers would check their facts. And that's the thing. We assume the industry at a whole is doing those things and they're not. The same way we assume sometimes that the landowner, whoever that might be, must be protecting what they need to protect. So if there's no protection in place here, it must not matter. Those ideas of us assuming that someone else is making the right choices for us are no longer accurate. We as a whole, as an outdoor industry, as climbers, need to take it upon ourselves to make sure we're learning, we're understanding, and we're aware of all of these things that we might walk into. Yeah, that's a really good, and and even too beyond like climbing, like I've said, like, you know, I think it just spans across the whole outdoor industry of like, who who is the expert, right? Like, and returning mm-hmm. that expertise back to the indigenous people who, who like, if you really think about it, like, right, like we, we write like our experience and, and things like that. We're trying to get a job or whatever it may be. Um, and, and a lot of times experience is the thing that will land you the job. So it's like, how do we look at this any differently of like, who is the experts of stewardship and conservation? If you just landed a job because you had 10 years of experience versus like, you know, a degree or signed piece of paper or something, how is that any different than like indigenous people who have stewarded the land for thousands and thousands of years before, you know, you got your, concert your master's degree in conservation or whatever you know what I mean like it's so funny how we like what what sorts of things we um sort of prioritize and so you know returning this idea back to indigenous people as the experts um is really really important and and really something that the field guide is trying to drive home throughout the industry yeah I I have a master's degree myself in environmental management and it's just, it's, it's, I have this piece of paper that says that, but yeah, I have a shifting, my, my, my mindset is shifting a bit in this, in this realm. And I also work in land conservation. I work for a land trust and, you know, I internally, I think about these things as well, like almost every day when I'm out in the field doing my field work, I can't help but separate my, separate myself from that. As I mentioned, like in the Bears Ears example, I mentioned earlier, um, I've, I've, I've had these uh, experiences over the last couple of months. I I witnessed uh, a very profound um, uh, example of of racism at a conference a couple months ago, and I recognized it immediately. And everyone in the room, when this person said this statement that I'm not going to repeat here, but the the speaker said something on stage, and everyone looked around the room like, "Oh my God, what what did that guy just say?" And ever since then, like I've, it's, I mean, it's, it's happened before then. I mean, my mindset has changed before then, but that was a very profound experience for me to put things into perspective on how a person of color might feel in a room full of, of white folks at a, at a conservation focused conference. It's, it was, it was a very powerful experience. And, um, ever since then I've, I've put a different spin on a lot of these things. And this field guide is also, it didn't take me long after reading through the field guide. I'm like, yep, this is something I'm going to put at the forefront of my recreational experiences now, as much as I can uh, moving forward to any new place I go to any existing place I've been to a million times before. Um, this is going to definitely move things in the right direction. And another example I wanted to mention is um, I used to use the phrase, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Hmm. And it was right after that experience I had at that conference, Mike, that phrase is being nixed from my vocabulary. I'm never using that again because I was able to shift this mindset that I had before. And it's like, this is not really an appropriate 
uh, statement to, to make anymore in regards to like land management. It's 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 spoken a lot in land management when there's stakeholders coming together to discuss a certain issue or topic or whatever. And if someone's not at the table, then they might be on the menu. And it's like, come to think of it, it's like, who's been on the menu forever, forever until like now, now it's starting to come into light that indigenous folks, people of color have never been on the menu. So I personally, that was a great learning experience for me to never use that phrase again. So Anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna move on to some further questions, yeah. but I want I wanted to acknowledge that and and bring that to light. Um, the pledge, the, the Indigenous Field Guide pledge, is something that's circling around the social media. A lot of folks are are, are are broadcasting it, and I've seen it a lot now with the Access Fund, the Climbing Initiative, so on and so forth. Could you guys, could you two talk about what's included in this pledge? There's like 16 phrases or uh, pledge points, as you mentioned earlier, that's made up, that's that put this pledge together of I will, I won't statements. Could you exp- expand on that a little bit, uh, what those what those pledge items are and how you two wrote up all these pledge points? Yeah, so we, so Sky and I met a couple of years ago um, through Scarpa, the climbing shoe company. Um, they uh, started a um, athlete mentorship initiative and um, over the course of the year, um, Sky and I were both mentees of this inaugural program. And, um, you know, as, as two of maybe like how many indigenous folks with like five of us total in this program, maybe. Um, and so um, Sky and I met and um, we also met with a couple other um, folks within the program to identify. And we each like wrote our own lists of what we'd want to see on this pledge as we were developing this resource. And so I came to the table with 10 things and Sky came to the table with 10 things and, and the few other people as well. And so we took all of these different points and we, as a group, kind of ranked them of what we felt like needed to be out there. And some of the stuff was duplicates, right? Like same sort of language um, or same message, but maybe just written a little bit differently. And um, collectively as a team, we decided on these particular pledge points that are on, um, on the site currently. And as the absolute most important things that needed to be addressed. And we're seeing a lot of that mirrored in um, what we're seeing amplified from other indigenous uh, like nonprofits or um, tribal led um, coalitions and things like that as well. And um, so, you know, we're seeing the same messages elsewhere to kind of compare and contrast and know um, that we're amplifying similar messages. But these pledge points um, we had decided were of utmost importance. We got a lot of, um, you know, we had a lot of input from various indigenous athletes all across the Americas, as well as sought, you know, some legal input and wanted to make sure that we were phrasing things exactly um, how we wanted it to come across, you know, but like Sky said, we've also had people, you know, in thinking about this pledge and thinking about how potentially non-controversial something like this could be, right? We're talking about cultural protection and stewardship and conservation and, 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 and amplifying indigenous concerns. Like people were still kind of giving us grief about some of these pledge points and still do. And there is a lot of hesitation within the outdoor industry to sign this pledge because it is the next step. You know, you see various organizations doing their land or uh, their um, land acknowledgements, right? Or their indigenous acknowledgements that they're 
festivals or their events, they're inviting local tribes to come do a blessing or a ceremony or a dance performance. And then everybody goes home and nobody does anything else. And they continue on their merry way, like, you know, potentially with no regards over like one, what is the next step and how can I honor what I just experienced and learned and really like embed that into my outdoor recreation. And it truly also feels like from an organizational perspective, like these organizations are inviting these people out. They're doing these things are being performative and they're, unwilling to sign a pledge that says, I will protect cultural resources, or I will give um, fish and wildlife space because I understand that that is food to indigenous people, or I will honor closures. I mean, let's for a second talk about the voluntary June closure of Devil's Tower. Like that is so controversial. And it's like, it's a voluntary, like we're literally asking the bare minimum of you. And somehow that is yet controversial. And so, you know, through this pledge, like we've really, driven home these points and a lot of orgs and businesses have been like, yes, absolutely. And Scarpa was one of them. They were the first one, you know, that's how Sky and I met. They were the ones that were like, come up with a big project. And this was our big project. And I just remember like the day, that we, do you remember that? I remember the I, day we presented well, this, Yeah. This and it Scarpa. was hysterical because they were like, okay, let's do a capstone project. And this uh, field guide is something that I had been kind of talking about. So I do want to add, we had multiple continents of indigenous folks. So from yeah. other continents, as well as the Americas that were a part of this. Um, so it's, it's really worldwide um, at this point. But when they brought up this capstone idea, I'm like, man, I really have been weighing over this like worldwide pledge that can like somehow blanket everything. And I think one of the first comments was like, you guys don't have to go that big. And then Brianna was like, well, I'm in. Sign me up. And I was like, okay, well, uh, two people means we can double the work. So we're going to go big. And yeah, I mean, we went full steam into this. We, you know, like through Kanaka Climbers, I have met so many indigenous folks from around the world that have had very similar issues that we've run into had the very sim same um, conversations of people not understanding the perspective we're coming from or not understanding why they should listen. And, you know, I never want to be like pointing my finger, hey, you do this, you don't do this. I want to give you, here's the history, here's the laws, here's how you can help, where's that action item? And then I want you to take that information and I want you to make a responsible decision. I already have kids. I'm not trying to tell anybody else what to do, but I do want to provide that information for you. And that's the pledge. You know, you're looking at stuff that for me, I look at it and I'm like, yeah, well, duh, obviously. But, you know, there was things like staying on marked trails, not making your own. We had multiple questions of, well, then how are we supposed to, you know, uh, get any FAs? How are we supposed to create a new space for climbing? And it was, do you understand the... If there's any endangered species, what are the laws in your space for being able to go and cut a trail? Um, you don't know that? Then don't cut a trail. If you are hunting in like that country, obviously those laws are different. You are allowed to do that. But I hope you understand your ecosystem of the spaces you're stepping into. So everything isn't a pointed this is exactly how you should look at it. It's for you to take back and think, put it in terms of where you're going. 
you know, backcountry. I will stay on marked trails and roads and I will not make my own trails when possible. You know, it says when possible. So obviously it's going to be slightly different. But now I'm thinking about it and I'm like, okay, so ethically, is this responsible? Where should I stay? Do I need to be cutting a trail? Learning about that space kind of comes into play. So these pledge points are points for everybody to start digging in to that understanding. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like, you know, kind of back to like the pledges origin. Like I just remember, so like we presented this project, right? This capstone project to the small team at SCARPA. And I just remember like the CEO was like, oh my God, this is huge. This is going to be so impactful. And this was in January. So this, this pledge is really new. I was talking to someone about the retailer uh, last week and they were like, oh, I've heard about this, but it's like really new. And I was like, yes, like five months old, <laughs> you know, Sky and I, we worked on this all of last year, all of, uh, what year is it? All of 2021. And we launched the website and, and everything, you know, the beginning of January and had one, you know, two organizations and a business on board. And now, you know, we've grown to get this in the hands of, of the access fund, the climbing initiative, um, you know, various brands out there in the industry, some of which awesomely also support this podcast. So whoop, whoop. Um, but, um, we also now have uh, almost 500 individuals who've signed it and that's not counting that's any nice organizations. Question. Yeah. It's been really amazing to see it uplifted from our indigenous communities all over, right? Because, you know, like Sky said, she had a lot of connections with other indigenous community members through Kanaka Climbers and that work. You know, I've, I've made connections with other um, indigenous um, community members in the outdoor rec community because it's, you know, I'm over here in the Southeast and like there are a lot of other, whether displaced or not, indigenous individuals all across the Americas recreating outdoors, whether it's climbing, running, hiking, biking, whatever that may be. But they're also like, you know, we're looking for each other and we're connecting. And so, you know, I was able to build all of these really amazing connections by, you know, being in the industry, being an athlete, you know, connecting with other brands and things like that to really also amplify this and, um, you know, bring this to the table with Access Fund and say, here's this indigenous field guide, like, you know, that me and another person created, will you sign it? And um, the fact that there was like not a blink of an eye, you know, we welcomed any feedback. You know, there have been a lot of instances where we've received feedback that we like didn't ask for. Um, and, you know, but, um, you know, we were able to move forward and access fund completely backing this field guide and really amplifying it and bringing in um, other individuals who, you know, we're watching it span the outdoor industry from brands like the big brands, right, to amplification from our indigenous communities as well. And I'm really excited to see if this field guide, you know, I want to believe that this resource, however it chooses to, however we choose to connect with and work with groups and people and things like that can shift what's happening and bring um, the outdoor industry together with the indigenous tribes, bring them to the forefront of the table and not just so that we can keep our places open so that we selfishly can continue to recreate, right? Like if that's going to always be the driving indicator behind why these orgs and these groups and these nonprofits are backing indigenous communities, 
and not for the sake of protection of land, people, cultural resources in our planet. Like we're, we're not, it's not going to succeed. And we need to move to a place where um, these orgs, like big ones, like Access Fund, small ones, like the local climbing organizations and other um, conservation and environmental groups, as well as outdoor rec groups, come on board, bring indigenous people to the table, not because they're worried if their climbing is going to be closed, but because they understand it to be important and because, um, because it matters and because it's the right, right thing to do. Well, the Access Fund, we mentioned them multiple times now, obviously, and it's one of the multiple organizations that you mentioned that has signed on to the pledge. And I saw, Brianna, that you, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I saw you recently post something about how much it means to you that the Access Fund is behind you two on this, yeah. which is, I mean, really no surprise, sure. but and just how proud you are to be a part of a team that has the right values, right morals, and is doing the right thing. Could you tell us some more about that and Access Fund support for the field guide? Yeah, and it's not a secret that Access Fund has historically not been on the right side of this sort of conversation. That is public. Mm -hmm. That is something that, you know, the Access Fund has communicated and we understand. Um, however, you know, I have there has been, um, you know, shifts as there always are within businesses and organizations and perspective changes and an understanding that this is something that needs to be prioritized and amplified. And um, that, you know, in order to, in order for us to succeed in protecting these places, we need to work with the indigenous communities and the local tribes and amplify the concerns of the indigenous community if we hope to protect these places for future generations and 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 in and in, in a much larger sense protect our our planet and and our ecosystem and our agriculture um and you know i am not the type of person who would um you know say something if i didn't feel that way i don't really feel as though you know it's worth the breath for me to be like i'm so proud of this when really i'm like well you know there's a couple things i would change but um, I'm really lucky to be able to work for an organization that, you know, I've only been with Access Fund for nine months, but I've been in the industry for a couple of years and worked with folks from Access Fund for a while. And um, I'm really proud to see this as something that they are proud to amplify, that I feel as an indigenous woman in a space where I could very much not feel respected and uh, you know, not feel as though my voice is heard, that I'm given the opportunity to vocalize my concerns, push for certain um, messages like the field guide and otherwise, and allow the space to one, not, not only be heard, but you know, be told like, this is the right thing to do. We're doing this because it needs to happen and it's the right thing to do. Like I keep saying that, but that's one thing Chris Winter, the executive director of Access Fund, like he said before, he's like, Access Fund does the right thing. And I'm like, hell yeah. Like I will get behind the right <laughs> thing to do before anything else. And like at the end of the day, that's like something that I'm really proud of to, to feel like, yes, we are understanding that we, uh, like that Access Fund has historically you know, possibly made mistakes in this regards and been on the wrong side of messaging or whatever that might look like. But now they're like, okay, let's talk about that. And like, let's move forward and try to do differently and amplify what needs to be done in order to protect these cultural resources, in order to amplify indigenous concerns and bring the message and the table 
back to the indigenous communities and bring them at the forefront at that like at the end of the table you know like the chair like the grandpa sits at at dinner time or whatever you know like <laughs> let's bring them to the table and like allow them the platform and the voice to vocalize their concerns and um yeah i'm just i'm really really proud that they you know were one of the first big organizations to to sign on it's been really awesome Great. It's something I'm incredibly proud of too. I'm not a staff member of the organization, but I'm incredibly proud of that and proud to do the show on their in their behalf and and talk to you too about this kind of stuff. It's it's something you should be proud of. I'm also curious, are you are you still are you still part of the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition? I am, yeah. And you know, it's been a little slower with various local climbing organizations. We we want it, we want to get this message in front of you know nationwide organizations. We feel like it's really impactful on a nationwide level, and a lot of that work then trickles down to the local areas. Um, but a lot of my work with the Red River Gorge Climbers Coalition is still to really um, you know create um, that local impact with Climb Late, which is one of the um, you know monthly um, free climbing nights that I host in the gyms to re- and really amplify. Um, the black and indigenous and, and queer and adaptive communities um, to bring them in for free climbing. And so there's a lot of work that I'm also doing at a local level. It's just sort of like, you know, when you get big organizations to amplify a message, there's this trickle down effect. And so we're kind of seeing that happen now where, you know, local organizations are slowly signing on because like I said, like this is fairly new. And so the messaging, it takes a little bit of time to get out there and get in front of people. And so we're gradually seeing, um, local climbing organizations signing on and inquiring about like how to get involved and how they can um, amplify the message. And, and what we really want is for those organizations to sign the pledge and commit to it um, before, you know, we're before Sky and I are offering up our volunteer time to work with any group or org to, um, you know, on messaging or to educate their, their user groups or whomever that might be. Like we want, we want, we want a signature. Like we want this to be the next step that, that, that people, that organizations and businesses take um, to sort of like, you know, stand their ground. Like we want, we want them to like sign this and, and do that as the next step. There's also this, um, you know, as organizations get larger, we sometimes miss those smaller groups. Um, I'm talking the organizations that focus on like one bouldering area, Um, the indigenous, the one indigenous person in a community of climbers who is advocating. These are the people that we are committed to highlighting, you know. Even though we're getting these larger organizations, these nationwide and hopefully worldwide organizations to sign on, our focus will always be those individuals who are doing it right, those organizations who are active in those spaces. They are truly kama'aina to those spaces, people of the land. Um, That's the goal. You know, we're here to highlight and amplify the groups that need it, the groups that are putting in the work in their small backyard. And like, does it impact nationally you know when you look at like the the people in our industry who get highlighted they're big names they have movies about them they are sponsored climbers you know we don't need to help those guys we need to help those small people and they're not small by any means like what the work they're doing is heavy but i want and and brianna wants to really focus on building up 
what's going on in these small communities. You don't have to be impacting your entire state. You just need to make an impact. And and we're so stoked for anybody that's doing that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and sort of to even piggyback off of that, you know, at the end of the day, Sky and I joke because we're like, we don't really like we're, we're excited when big organizations sign on. But at the end of the day, our mission is to amplify ind- our indigenous community members. And like we're so psyched when Access Fund signs on or a local climbing organization or a business or whatever that may be. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to twist someone's arm to sign this pledge. We're yeah. we want we want to communicate with and work with large brands and organizations because we know that while working with them, our, our message can be amplified, but we also, our focus is amplifying our community. And so we're always going to be focused on growing our connect page to get various leaders and businesses and indigenous community members into our database um, and always amplifying various projects and resources um, within our indigenous communities. And like, if, if other brands and orgs want to amplify that too, awesome. If they don't, I'm not going to have six meetings with you about how to, why you should change language about something like <laughs> we're, we're really not interested in like coercing or convincing anybody to sign this pledge because it's not mm-hmm. like, it's not worth it at that point. Like if you're not driven enough to change your mind, but you feel like, you know, Oh, I might, I should sign it. Cause it's the, you know, I'm feeling pressured for whatever. Like how many people two years ago in 2020 after George Floyd's death posted a black square on their Instagram because they felt pressured by their community members to show their solidarity for the black community. Like I don't want to twist someone's arm to sign this pledge. Like if you already don't feel as though this is something important, um, then we're like, we're moving on because our purpose is to amplify our indigenous communities. And that's where Sky and I are putting our efforts is connecting with the indigenous people, but also knowing full well where we sit in the industry and that there is there is a connection that this resource will have within all of these different groups, um, you know, because of our platforms and because of the organizations that we work for and that we are climbers and that we out we recreate regularly and all of these things, you know, we can have influence on because we understand conservation and stewardship and climbing and outdoor recreation, but we are also indigenous women who understand the community and the concerns and want to amplify those as well and understand that that needs to be amplified. And so collectively bringing that together um, within all of the industry is what we're hoping to accomplish. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I, know, I, could, I know that you, val- you don't, you're not valuing like the next biggest. Right. Uh, organization or business that signs on like great if they do if not okay we're going to move on and focus on the folks that that are 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 looking to learn more and and be a part of this and continue to amplify the indigenous communities it's a really good way of putting it i love your perspective on that and i i i I come to understand that uh, by signing on to this pledge like the person who's signing that they understand that some areas will always have different needs than others. These areas are not mutually exclusive. They're not created equal. And the recreationist recognizes that they may not recreate in the same way in every location. It takes initiative to find out what those nuances are about each area. And 
that's what's so important about this is there's no blanket one size fits all way to recreate in the same but in, in different spaces exactly and it's too about you know how is our mind shift mindset shifting to to take pause when we're in these various spaces you know i think of it like you know what we've known to be true was that in the desert you pack out when you go to the bathroom in the woods like you take a shit you pack it out <laughs> in the southeast you know historically we've you know, dug a cat hole or done X, Y, Z. And now, you know, things are shifting. And so historically, places have been different. The way in which we recreate, the way in which we even pack it out is different. And now as a collective outdoor recreation community, we're understanding that like packing it out is the best, um, most sustainable thing. And so like understanding that like place and space are different depending on where you are, but collectively moving together to address a set of concerns and bring things sort of together, regardless of where you are, is important too, because if we can shift someone's mindset, regardless of where they are in the Southeast, the Northeast, um, Canada, you know, Hawaii, wherever you are, we can all be collectively thinking the same thing, albeit recreating in different areas. We will take pause before we access a place or we'll be thinking about, you know, the next step we take or where we're choosing to go climb or what are these, you know, flowers or creatures or whatever that are around me to, you know, be more aware and have more of a connection to that space. And that really doesn't change regardless of where you are, albeit location and how we recreate, you know, is very different depending on where we are. But the way in which we approach it is what we want to begin to shift in people's minds. Like they're thinking about these things or having conversation. And even if you're not on a trail, like if I'm hanging out my backyard, maybe I'm still even having conversation about this. And um, but that our, our mindsets begin to shift into this similar um, idea. Well, I think you both are on the right track with this. Absolutely. Um, folks are signing on. I signed on as an individual. I'm going to. I'm going to read over it again. You know, I'm the executive director of the local climate organization here in the Gunnison Valley. So I want my organization, our organization here to be involved in this. I'm going to circle up with my team and start talking about this and have these conversations as well. So you're making waves in the pool here. And I love to see it. I think the community largely loves to see it. So keep on going. Is there any, are there any big next steps that you, that either of you see for the field guide, for the pledge? Uh, what's, what's the ne next big thing for you two? Yeah, we've got some um, different events and things coming up. Um, so I'm headed to Rumney, New Hampshire this weekend for a brand new festival called Rumney Together. It's um, a festival that uh, was created to amplify um, marginalized community members. And so, um, you know, I'm going there to represent Access Fund and table with some of our Northeast crew, but also I'll have opportunity to share the field guide and share space with the local tribe that's coming to do a ceremony as well. So I'm very lucky to be able to um, share that space with them to um, amplify the Indigenous Field Guide in that space. And we have um, another series of webinars coming up. Um, we've partnered with an Indigenous woman in the community um, to amplify these webinar series that she's been doing where um, she's been covering various Indigenous folks in the outdoor community, um, outdoor recreation community. And so um, these are things that we'll be amplifying from our social media as well as, um, you know, 
some things that are unforeseen. You know, we don't really know how this is going to grow. It's so new. I feel like every uh, every day opens a new door. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we're looking forward to being involved with the Access Funds um, Climbing Advocacy Conference in the fall. And I'm sure a variety of other initiatives and exciting things around, you know, door number two <laughs> at some point in the mm-hmm. near future. You know, every every org that signs on, every individual that we amplify, it's it feels like, you know, every post we make makes waves in the pool. And it's really amazing to see, um, you know, I get notifications on my phone every time someone signs the pledge. And um, I always get so excited when I see folks that do and and hear from them how they want to amplify this message and and not really ask from us, yet what's the next thing? How do you want this plugged in? But like, really, like, it's up to y'all, right? Like this, we're not a nonprofit, we're a resource. And we're um, and we want to provide a resource, but we want people and organizations to take the next step. And we've had questions of like, how does my organization sign on? And the message I always communicate is that an organization or a business is a collective group of individuals. And so if one individual has the permission to sign on behalf of an entire organization, that org, you know, we like we'll amplify, we'll, we'll highlight them on our website. We'll talk about, you know, and they've taken that initiative to be that representative for that brand or organization. Um, and of course, you know, when you go on our site and sign the pledge, it's um, set up for an individual to sign so that uh, any one person wouldn't be confused signing it. But we have had questions around like, how does my org sign up? How do we sign the pledge? Um, and, and the messaging we get across is um, that one person can sign on behalf with your, with your organization's permission, um, sign on behalf of that org. And, you know, we, we're excited to talk about those organizations too, because it's important that people know that Access Fund or Gnarly Nutrition or the, um, you know, NRAC over in, in West Virginia and, and these other orgs are signing on and are psyched to disperse the field guide. Um, you know, we've got resources, we have brochures and different um, things like that, that we've um, sent out. And so, you know, in terms of next steps, like we want to get people to sign the pledge. We want people committing we want them to take the next step. Go beyond the land acknowledgement that you do at the beginning of your meeting. Go beyond inviting the one indigenous community member that you know to speak at your event. Learn and take initiative and do the next thing and sign the pledge and amplify it um, and disperse it within your communities because it's important that this message um, gets out there. Yeah, and then there's that idea of accountability, you know? Um, we have had orgs be super concerned about accountability of it. Like, how are we going to enforce this? And we're not. It's self-accountability. You signed it. You know, when you sign it, you're going to get a PDF form in your email. You can have it on your computer. It's something you can reference. It's something you can use for conversation. It's really you are taking that personal next step or your organization is taking that personal next step. Um, you know, we aren't funded. It's just me and Brianna have passion for this. And um, I think that actually keeps it a little bit more true to itself that we are doing this for the love of these spaces and for our, you know, all of our sports and things like that. And we really want everybody to just change the industry, be accountable to yourself, to your community, um, help us amplify something as simple as a share on you know a a big climbers page is huge for us you can tell you know 
there's some mornings we wake up and I'm like, what's going on? Did, did something happen? And we like have to search and we start digging for who shared what. And sometimes it's one share from one climber and we get like 10 to 15 sign-ons within a day. And it's, it's great. It's a great feeling. All right. Thanks everyone for tuning in. I, I really hope you all enjoy this show as much as I enjoy making it. It's a lot of fun putting this together each month for you all to tune in and listen to. So thanks so much for listening. Before you depart, I want to run a few things by you. I started the show to bolster the efforts that these advocates do year after year, and of course, to support the mission of Access Fund. So I'd like to ask you to either donate or better yet, become a member of Access Fund. Your support and membership goes a long way to help them with their mission of conserving, stewarding, and advocating for climbing. There are varying levels that you can that you can become a member at, but you can get started for as low as 20 bucks a year, and after that, you can reap all kinds of awesome benefits with first getting a free t-shirt and getting amazing discounts on some of the best climbing products out there. It's all listed on Access Fund's website, accessfund.org, so check it out. If you're a rock climber, please consider becoming a member of Access Fund. Second, if you want to do me a huge solid, please subscribe to the show and leave a glowing review and comment on Apple Podcasts. After that, jump on those social media channels and share it with your friends. It goes a long, long way, and I'd greatly appreciate if you help me out with that one. So thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it, and I'll catch you all next time.